Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. Thrilled to be joined this week by Corey Hofstein, also known as Chofstein, new resident of the Caribbean, which is what we're talking about right now, although I think he's coming back to the States, but maybe not. We'll see. What do we have to get out of the way here, Corey? None of this is investment advice. This is our opinion. Do your own due diligence. This is Nothing for entertainment is... purposes. That's right. Nothing's an invitation or solicitation to purchase any security mentioned. You know the drill, folks. We're talking about Corey's recent move and my recent move. So why'd you go to the Caymans? Well, first, thank you for having me. Oh, dude, this please. Is, thank uh, you for I... joining. When I started my podcast several years ago, I said, the world does not need another podcast. I still believe that about my podcast. <laughs> I like your pod. I like your pod. Uh, thank you. But I, I have to say your podcast has been an incredibly refreshing breath of air. I have really enjoyed listening to it. You've done a phenomenal job. Shout out to Matt Passy, who, yeah, who that's I know right. is your editor. But I have to say, I did just notice you have a an incredibly luxurious podcast voice. Thank you. You and I, I are chatting. I before, that. People don't realize you don't sound like this at all. We were chatting before and then the mic goes live and you just drop into this silky baritone. You think that's what happens for real? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so, know. I do I do kind of feel like when the lights go on, so to speak, I don't know. Something changes, man. I really, like, I love doing this. It's great. It's fun. It's fun. So to your question, I think your question was moving, moving to the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. What was your thought process? So my wife and I were living in Venice, California. Due to a family health-related issue, actually, last year, ended up moving to Massachusetts and spent five months out of California, far longer than we expected to. But between COVID, protests, fires in California, family health issues, we just ended up being around Massachusetts between my family and my wife's family for about five months and said, you know, this this working remotely thing works for us. Do you want to do that cliche thing where we leave California and find somewhere else? And so we started poking around and found that certain islands in the Caribbean were offering these what were effectively work from home visas that you could come. It's Bermuda, Barbados and Grand Cayman right now. And you have to apply for them. And, you know, you go through this whole like background check process and all that sort of stuff. But Grand Cayman in particular was really interesting because I know some people here. So Resolve Asset Management moved pretty much their entire business here. But there's also no cases of COVID. And and you go through a very strict quarantine process when you come to the island. But after that, the island's entirely open. I I haven't worn a mask in three months. I've gone to restaurants and bars and the beaches are open. So it's been a very privileged sort of get to go back to pre-2020 days for a while. That's awesome. That's kind of like Florida, except there is COVID here. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, I make a joke. I'm not joking, folks. I do wear my mask. But some people around here just never really believed. But, so what made you pick up and move? Man, so I'm looking at him right now. He's, he's my screensaver. My oldest kid and I, he's an incredible human, but he has some characteristics about him that I think are probably the things in myself that annoy me the most. And he is relentless with his curiosity and question asking. And I really felt like he had to be in school for a number of reasons. And he was in like a really progressive school, which in retrospect, we probably shouldn't have put him in. Like he just wasn't advancing in the way that I thought he should. 
And like once we got him in sort of a normal school, man, this kid has taken off. But oh, I just wasn't able to take the risk of not having my kids in school. And I thought like in Chicago, right, I didn't think anything would be open. And I, I didn't know that things would be open in Florida. But what I did know is if they weren't open, we could at least get outside and go to the beach and like, you know, run around and stuff. Because I think pretty early on this, it, you know, if you were paying attention, it was pretty obvious from the from the outset that if you were outside the risk of transmission was like materially reduced, right? Right. So Chicago did not have that. And I thought that you put me and him in a house for the winter and we could have a permanent impairment of our family. <laughs> so yeah. so I, I figured that risk was not a risk worth taking. And then we got down here, man, and, and we like it. So we're going to stay. Good for you, man. Yeah, it's a great choice. It, it's amazing to me talking to people around the country right now who are saying schools in their area are now closing again because That's of second insane. strains. Yeah, so it's. I thought everything would have been open by now. If I if I were a betting man last year, I would have said, "Yep, by Q two twenty twenty one, things will be fine." And yeah, it's 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 very volatile all over the country right now. Yeah, I mean, now we're going to get into opinion base, and this is bound to piss some people off. But I, I just think this is like where we're at right now as a society. I really feel like we're running from a risk that we know, and the risk that like no one is well, I shouldn't say no one is talking about it, but to me, kids have to get into schools. And like my kids have been in school all year, there have been no massive outbreaks. They're all masked up, they don't, they're better than the adults. And like the school has been clean and the, you know, all the schools around here, you're not reading like, oh my God, how are they doing it? Right. So like get these kids in school. That risk is way bigger. I think at this stage of what's going on than COVID, you know, March, totally different. I think it's really easy to measure first order effects, non-linear second order effects of how this is going to impact the education of a generation and all that sort of stuff. The mental health of people who were locked in their houses for a year. I mean, look, I, I agree. We got to get COVID under control. And again, I'm not trying to piss off any listeners here, but I, I, we can't even have this debate, right? You and I can't even talk about this on the podcast without saying, oh, we're going to really piss people yeah. off. But it's too bad we can't have the public discussion around there are serious mental health issues and choices that we're making that we're making silently as a country. Yeah. And you know what it is? So I do think that, I mean... Maybe what I'm about to say is not correct, but I do think that being investors helps facilitate the conversation because it is one of those like latent risks, right? But it is a very real risk. And if you're not used to maybe looking at risk, then maybe it's easier to focus on like the one risk that's in front of you. Yeah. I, I don't know, but I but like I mean, our job is to always look at risk, right? So I don't know if that Yeah, that, that helps. said I think being an investor has taught me that my opinion is always wrong. So like, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. yeah, that's totally fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, I will say that if you look at the data, I just, I, it's, it's just very hard for me to understand how kids aren't in school right now. And I'm just really grateful that we're here. It's going to be really, really interesting to see some of these cities come out of, you know, on the back end, part of what, we were worried about in Chicago is I just don't know what it's going to do to the budgets of the, of that state. I, I mean, I 
think I know, and I don't think it's great, and that state doesn't have a great history of politicians doing the right thing over time, and it's just not that a risk I want to take. in dire straits before COVID. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So taxes are probably going up, and the sun is shining here, and that's about as hard as my thought <laughs> process is going to get anymore, right? Yeah. So I, I do want to hit you now that we're we're talking about life and stuff. There's a very important question that you know I floated out to the Twitter machine, and that's and always it, dangerous, by the way. Yeah, I know, but this one's pretty good, and I have a sense of why it came back to you, but I don't know what your answer is. Before we get into the real investment stuff, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? This is a great. So this is old, like internet meme culture. As okay. you know, and I think that's probably coming back to me because I, I right in like the real heyday of of the Wall Street bets GameStop saga versus Melvin Capital, I tweeted a joke saying, "Well, I guess we learned the answer," and it was a picture of a uh. horse sized duck with a label of Melvin Capital falling off a cliff, being pushed off by a hundred duck sized horses. All so, right, now I get why. It's I think that's where it's coming you. back to. Look, I. I a horse-sized duck, if I'm going to take this very seriously, ignoring the whole weird physics of it, a horse-sized duck is a pretty scary thing to think about. Yeah. But I don't know what the weight of a horse-sized duck would be, and it's a lot of feathers. And other than maybe it kicking me mm. and pecking me, you know, I don't know. A hundred duck-sized horses, on the other hand, like, are, are we talking baby ducks? Are we talking, like, no, I think, it's a, I think it's a full duck. I think you're looking at a mallard. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how they're taking me down, I guess. Like... They're just gonna nip at my heels. They can't That's really. That's what I didn't know, right? They're they're like kicking you, but it's just tiny little hooves. Yeah, I mean those things pack a mean punch, but a hundred of them can't kick you at once. That's so, exactly right. They're kicking each other. So I think it would be a hundred duck-sized horses, but I suspect I'd be exhausted at the end. Yeah, I. But to your point, like unless you got so exhausted that you're laying down and they're just kicking you in the head, what's your downside? I feel like the big duck could just one peck and you're done. Yeah, and by the way, this is a hundred percent the content that people turn into this podcast for. I, I actually <laughs> think it sort of is. I, I don't think. I, I think this is part of what people like about the podcast. I need actually. more of this on my podcast. This would make mine more much more popular. I listened to your podcast, a couple of the episodes. I had listened, and then I apologize. I turned off. I've gotten a little obsessed with my own thing. No offense. That's I understand. But yes, the quality of your discussion is quite a bit different than this particular discussion. That's a fact. So can we can we keep spiraling out on podcast discussions? Yes. So yes, um, we should do this. I found this that every- literally the entire premise of this conversation is two people get on the mic and talk and see where it goes. Every host does things very differently. And I, one of the reasons I do a seasonal podcast is because I find that for me to be comfortable doing a podcast, especially with some of the topics that I go into that I want to be really prepared for, for some of these episodes, I end up not only, I do a pre-call with every single guest I do that's at least an hour long, but then I have to spend an hour to normally two or three hours coming up with a list of questions that I send them. I'm often listening to their other podcasts. Like each episode, I don't know if guests, not guests, I don't know if listeners really understand this. Like a podcast host can spend hours preparing for some of these episodes. And I just don't have that. Like to me, I'm like, okay, I know spring is when I do it. And then I get the rest of the year off because it's so overwhelming. And I know for me, I think part of it's just because 
I'm not super conversational. Like if you just put me with some like a really smart quant, I don't know how fluid the conversation is. And I'm curious as to what your approach is. Because I do know, I don't know if I can reveal the veil, that you reached out to me asking about what stuff, you know, would be worth you reading and listening to that I've done recently that would really be good for this conversation. But yeah. I'm curious as to what your preparation process is like. So I originally wanted to, inter I mean, I like you, we, we met each other in Chicago and Toby speaks highly of you. So I was like, all right, if he's cool with Toby, he's good with me. And then I liked you when we met. Right. So that's, that was step one. Then I really respected the thread that you did when you went through sort of like what happened last year and, and how sort of what I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth and we're going to cover this, but I think a, a strength of your strategy became a weakness when the market moved that quickly in both directions. And I was like, man, this is cool of him to admit because it's not that easy to write like a really public thread that I, I don't know. I thought that was dope. And I think that it's a very high integrity move and I respected it. Then I guess what I what I did, you know, just like thinking about how I prepared for you is I like to have the background. So if the conversation stalls out, I can kind of like, you know, mentally just pull up, hey, you know, what did what did you like about this conversation that you recommended to me? But I don't necessarily care where we go with the conversation. I would say that each episode is starting to come down to probably maybe like 10 to 12 hours. Of... It's a lot of work. I don't think people realize that you yeah. put 10 to 12 hours of work into each episode. I mean, dude, those first ones were crazy, but I was yeah. like obsessed. Like, I think I listened to Dan's like six or seven times because it, it wasn't so much that I barely edit these but that was part of what what was difficult. Like I think if you listen to like the Mike Mitchell episode was edited a little bit to the point that people were like, why are you interrupting him? You know, and I, I wasn't, but it's sort of like Matt and I had to figure out or Matthew, I'm sorry, I called you Matt, man. Um, I think I we, did the same at the beginning. Yeah, well, <laughs> my but, bad, I, but I work with him, so I should probably know. But well, like, Matthew so do I. I. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. We had to just kind of figure out where we wanted to be because, you know, a lot of the conversations are these are the questions, these are the answers. And this is just like two people, you know, riffing. So right. the editing got a little bit, I, I just think that had to be ironed out. Now that we've got kind of it, it figured out, I have to listen again to figure out, like, to really make sure that a guest doesn't say something that could get them in trouble, like, professionally, and and then make sure that there's no, like, compliance issues on their end. Right. Other than that, it's just, like, reading and, and preparing and stuff, so. Well, what what made you want to start a podcast? I have always loved radio. Like, I love it. And I've listened to Stern when I was at, like when I was younger and stuff, really went, once he went to Sirius XM, I would just listen to his long form interviews. And I was like, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, you're trying to be Rogan meets finance. I'm really not. Like I'm, I'm Stern is the dude that I idolize. But, you know, I'm not going to do like fart jokes on this. That wouldn't right, make much right. sense, right? right. <laughs> you got to kind of know your audience. So I don't know, man. I really enjoy it. What what do you think you've gotten from it? I mean, that was kind of an interesting discussion that we got into. I, I had said, you know, I don't run a fund. I'm not qualified. I guess part of the reason that I said that is like, I, I don't have the time to run like a legit fund. And 
you know, if I, I guess if I had a couple of analysts or something, I could maybe do it, but it's not really what I'm trying to do with my life right now. And I do think I've gotten immense benefit from this. So yeah. I'm curious to hear, I didn't mean to come at people that have a podcast and run a fund. That wasn't really the intention. I just, people had asked, how do you do it? And it's like, I don't. And, and by the way, I didn't, I didn't take your tweet to mean that either way, but I do think there is this perception out here that if you're managing a fund, you should not be hosting a podcast. And I just admitted it, it takes a lot of time. I think what people don't realize is first and foremost, if you're a small boutique running a fund, you're also running an asset management business. There is yeah. a marketing aspect. So let me just admit that. Of course, the podcast is marketing. Of course, social media is some form of marketing. That's why it's all regulated and reviewed by the SEC and FINRA, right? That's has to has to be that way. That said, I think particularly for a small firm, there are huge benefits in getting to expand your network, right? So all of these guests, most of them that I have on every season, this might be my first interaction with them. And I'm getting them recommended to me by people I really trust. And I'm getting to meet and interact and have really interesting conversations. A lot of them that aren't recorded, right? Yeah. So we have hours of discussion, a pre-call, back and forth in emails. I'm reading their work. I get to ask them about it. Not all of it, you know, some of it ends up on the, the cutting room floor, but it doesn't mean I didn't learn something from it. So my first goal with every episode is I want to learn something very selfishly. So it's an education process, but then I found that these people stay in my network and that when I'm trying to work through something in a portfolio, now I can go, Hey, you want to know what? I'm thinking about how these two factors interact. And I had three guests on last season that have really thought about this stuff deeply. Let me send each of them an email. And so all of a sudden it's like, I've had this external expert network that's been built that I can really tap into. You know, you can't do it every day. You're, you're overstaying your welcome, but it really does give you the ability to expand, expand sort of the, the knowledge base of your own firm without having to hire more people. So I think there's huge secondary benefits that, that get ignored by people who just listen to the podcast. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Or I do. I know, rather. I would say, like, for what I'm doing, too, I can say to my fans, I don't know enough about this. Can somebody help me out? Like, something that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, I've been long cable for a long time. Twitter is, like, really sort of a cable echo chamber. I'm really worried about the possibility that I don't know the technology that's coming down the road, right? So I can say... If somebody is like a true 5G expert, please reach out to me. And people hear that and like a lot of people want to talk, right? And right. I, I mean, as long as they're sincere in their wishes, like I'm down to put on a put them on a pod or I'm down to just chat with them. Like I I get a lot of, you know, expert interview, uh, for lack right. of a better term, like access that I wouldn't get otherwise. So that was big for me this season. I, I, I noticed that, and it's been true in past seasons, but I think when you have enough interviews and people can tell that you take it seriously and you start asking about a subject that's outside your realm of expertise, people will connect you with experts. I wanted to include an episode or two on crypto this season. And I know crypto is just a hot button issue, but I was able to make connections with senior people who have been in the space for a long time because the folks who were recommending me said, no, that he's not, he's not here with an agenda. He's here to learn. 
and he's going to take this podcast seriously. And I was able to, I wouldn't say I'm like up to speed with crypto by any means. I mean, I think you need to dedicate your life fully to that to really get in there. But to your point, you can ask a question and get connected to people who are really knowledgeable really, really quickly in a way that without the megaphone, you wouldn't be able to do necessarily. Yeah. I mean, what I'm, do- I'm doing it right now with the weed space. I mean, that's yeah. exactly what I'm doing, right? And I sh- shout out to Patrick because Patrick did it like first with the crypto. I mean, what he was doing that in like 2017. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was awesome what he did. I kind of at the time was too closed minded to take advantage of what he was distributing, but it's it's pretty evergreen. I mean, you got to get up to speed and whatever and, and update whatever was said. But yeah, crypto is wild. I recently interviewed Preston Pish. It's going to drop, you know, after this, but. It's amazing to me that people still think he was wrong. It's like yeah. this guy has been saying it since 2015. Even if you think it's tulip mania, it's impossible to argue to me that he was wrong at at least identifying that there would be more interest and more funds flow. If you just even reduce it to that as a thesis. Now, you know, whether or not he's right going forward, whether or not he's too tied into an idea that you disagree with, like I that's for other people and him to have the discussion. But it's amazing that people still can't fucking admit that that guy's right. You know, I think what's been very interesting to me is anytime I have a conversation about crypto with someone and they're very anti-crypto, very often I find that they actually haven't spent much time trying to learn in the space. They sort of shut the door and they're stuck in this 2016, 2017 mentality and they haven't learned what's changed in the last three years. Yeah. You know, and and that's not to say like, hey, maybe the whole space comes crumbling down. One of the questions I posed earlier, I think it was earlier this year, as I said, has there ever been an industry where so much human capital has been put into work over such a prolonged period that that industry didn't eventually amount to something, that the entire industry was a fraud? And everyone said tulips, tulips, tulips. And I think there's actually some interesting parts of tulip mania that go underreported. Aaron Brown, who used to be the head of risk at AQR, wrote a couple pieces that you can find online. He talks about it in his book, Red-Blooded Risk, where he basically says this mania was popularized by, I think it was Charles McKay in the yeah. Popular Delusions of Crowds, or I'm, I'm messing up that Yeah, book Extraordinary... Name. Popular Delusions, I think that's yeah, what it yeah, is. Madness yeah, Madness and the Delusions of Crowds or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he basically said that book is old, and misreported. And that's these aren't the facts. And if you actually go to the facts, a lot of what happened in tulip mania was basically tulips were getting used as a collateral vehicle. And it mm-hmm. made sense for what was going on at the time. And so not all of it was irrational. It seems super irrational in hindsight, but the actual bubble part was actually highly, highly minuscule compared to the potential utility by which a lot of this stuff was trading. So I just think it's hard to, to look at something like that and say, okay, Bitcoin is tulip mania or the crypto space is tulip mania. Do I understand non-fungible tokens and why top shots were trading the way they are? No, I'm sure there's some speculative froth. But I also sit there and go, it's been a decade. This stuff isn't dead. If anything, more interesting, more advanced stuff is happening. And I know brilliant, brilliant people yeah. who have either completely tricked themselves or I'm missing something. So I guess I guess <laughs> the hubris, right? Yeah, that's right. Maybe I should just take a step back and say, I haven't figured it out. 
and I need to be more open-minded. And maybe the only way for me to be more open-minded is actually to buy a little. Yeah. And just well, start Oh, playing. boy. I, I hope you're not admitting this, but we just yeah, made is... news. <laughs> yeah, I, I own crypto. Yeah. I own some crypto. No, I'm, I'm, I, I don't yet. And I say yet because I could totally see myself doing it. I think that, you know, an interesting pushback that I've gotten on Bitcoin is people are saying, well, you know, it's just an idea, right? Or, or it could all, well, you know, a lot of things are just an idea. Right. Um, like to me, gold is kind of just an idea. Now I understand it's got, indu- you know, industrial use cases. Gold doesn't trade on its industrial use case. Like I, I people hoard that stuff cause it makes them feel like it's going to be an inflation hedge. There are right. people now, the world that we're going to, I think you can't say that people aren't going to view digital assets in that same way. Well, and so- some of these NFTs, man, I don't understand why art trades where it is. But to some people, these NFTs are art. Are is it to me? No. Do I view a digital replica the same as any other thing? Yes, but not to everybody. Cars, watches, comic books, scotch, you know, like art. Yeah, okay, digital art seems a little weird, but if you have the view that the future is going to be VR and you're not going to go walk to see the Mona Lisa, you're going to put on a VR headset and go to a digital museum where you are going to see the most spectacular, unique piece of art in the highest definition you've ever seen. Right? I don't know if you've ever been to the Louvre and tried to see the Mona Lisa. Yeah. It's small, first of all. And then you have to stand a good distance back and like you're not seeing the brush strokes. There's a yeah. crowd of 50 people Everybody's around taking here. pictures. You know? Yeah. So versus now imagine a digital museum you're visiting and this is a one of a kind piece of art that isn't being replicated because there's one true owner of it in this digital metaverse. And it sounds crazy, but you start to see what's happening in video games like Fortnite where they're, it's not just a video game anymore. They're hosting events. They're hosting concerts. You know, digital goods have always had a lot of worth in video games, right? You go back to some of the earliest multiplayer online games. People put in hundreds and thousands of hours of human capital to earn those highest tier items, and they still traded a premium. I think there is some universe where that stuff happens, right? Maybe it's a low probability, but you can sort of potentially see how that plays out. As far as Bitcoin goes, you know, I think a lot of people talk about the economic utility of it. Oh, is it just digital gold, the scarcity, the inflation argument? I think the one I've been coming around more to is, does it just serve as the collateral asset of the entire crypto universe? That there's been enough adoption and it's a secure enough network that in and of itself, it's a pledgeable asset for someone who wants to borrow Ethereum. Or someone who wants to borrow these other utility tokens that are now out there. And that's sort of where I think things can be interesting. But again, none of these things would have been in my mind even as of six months ago because I was too closed-minded to even think about it. Are any of these things right? No, they could be 100% wrong and I could lose 100% of my money, which is why it's a very, very de minimis proportion of my net worth. But I think there's just too much interesting stuff going on to not at least be curious about it. Yeah, I totally agree. And like you look at some of the people that have made billion dollar companies, right? And now they're, uh, well, some of them are interested in the crypto in general. So, you know, it's just, you know, Adam Robinson was on and he said, like, if you see any things that don't make sense are things that you you don't want to short at a minimum, right? Right. And you don't have to ride it. You don't have to buy it. But 
ever since I heard him say that, I have, and I'm gonna, I'm totally gonna out myself because I did not open my mind to Bitcoin, so I'm not perfect. Whatever, that's my confession, folks. But like things that don't make any sense are things that I should ask myself. Okay, well, what about my worldview makes me think this doesn't make sense? Because it makes sense to somebody. And then, you know, whether or not you want to dedicate the time to ramp into the knowledge base is one thing, but I don't deserve to have an opinion on much of the crypto space. Right. And then God forbid I should say that, and and God forbid I should tweet a congratulations to Preston, who left one of the biggest shows in finance. I mean, he didn't leave it, right? It's a network, and he started a Wednesday show, but like... He put a lot of his reputation in that idea. To me, the dude bet big when it was nascent, has won, and is putting his his capital behind it and his reputation. Like, if you're in finance, how don't you respect that? That's crazy right. to me. Just because right. you don't like the outcome, like, I mean, get over yourself. And I will say, it is it is amazing how hot button an issue it is. I, I would remind everyone, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. Yeah, there is. It isn't like a a a like I'm positive or negative. You can just say I, I don't know, and I think that's one thing that I'll, people just don't say enough. And maybe it's the social media era. I don't know. I don't have an opinion. Maybe I should learn more. Right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what did it to me was these strong opinions that I had on SAS that were completely dead wrong. Yeah. Right. And and then I start talking to people that are SAS investors, and I think to myself, oh. These guys are a lot smarter than I was giving them credit for. And maybe I don't know everything in the world. Like, that's not the craziest thing to to figure out, right? And right. then why would I make the same mistake twice? That's just stupid. So, Well, you know, there's some very real behavioral biases that occur when you start to publicly announce your opinion. Yeah. They've done studies on this kind of stuff that if you, if you have an opinion and you keep it internal, you are willing to change that opinion. But the desire to remain consistent in your views publicly is a huge cultural pressure. So if you say you are anti-SAS and you just you think they're overpriced and you don't get it, it is very hard for you to then publicly say, I was wrong and I'm changing my opinion. Yeah. And and to the point where you will convince yourself, right, not to even go looking for the other side. So I think that's where social media can be really dangerous. When you express an opinion, you are locking yourself potentially in that view and putting blinders on. And, and I think, right, it's something that we have to think about as podcast hosts. I think the good news is I spend most of my time just asking questions. But, you know, when you your value after hours and value after dark with, with yeah. um, Toby, right, you have to think about the stuff. If you express an opinion, are you willing to turn around the next week and say, nope, I was wrong? Yeah. And I think you would, but a lot of people have trouble with that. Well, man, I've trained myself to, and sometimes I like to do it just to force myself to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm always genuine with it, but sometimes I like to argue the other side, even publicly to just like kind of make myself right. Mm -hmm. Um, the, a hard, a really hard example recently was naked wines because I like a lot of the guys that are long that name and I really respect them. And I don't, think it's quite as cheap as they think it is and i think that well i shouldn't say what they think i think it's not as cheap as my perception of what i think they think i know that that's like an important distinction because i don't want to talk for them but i started to use the product i really like the product i it was delivering a ton of value to me 
and I was I, I said, okay, I can deal with the complaints of the onboarding. Like that that I understand people say this is not good wine. I I don't think that that's the key question. Then I started started to have inventory problems. And to me, that incurs or that introduces like a a potential churn risk. And I am just not willing to hold that risk. And I hope yeah. the guys that are still long it are totally I hope they kill it and I hope that I look like an idiot for selling. But the risk that I can't look myself in the mirror with is if I held that because I had publicly said that I was long and that I like those guys and it became kind of like, you know, confirmation bias or whatever group think. If I lost to that, I would never be able to look at myself. So I was just like, all right, screw it. I'm out. Right. I think I think the case of this over the last decade has been Tesla. Yeah. Again, I mean, here, here we're going to blow up this podcast again, talking about Bitcoin and Tesla. <laughs> I, I should stress, by the way, I don't we're both buy. Hosts. In- we understand ratings. Yeah. <laughs> I don't buy individual stocks. Everything I do for the most part is sort of systematic quantitative investing. But I've held Tesla, not like individually by name, but when you buy momentum stocks as a basket, huh. Tesla is going to be in there. Yeah. Now, do I have a strong personal view on Tesla? I think my strong personal view is I don't understand it. But I think what has massively surprised me is he has been able to overcome narrative after narrative with a narrative, right? He's able to, to he, I mean, last year in particular, there was such a zeitgeist around Tesla's success and the, and the potential future that he was able to sell so much equity that he eliminated a solvency issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's right? amazing. And, and suddenly you go... Is this guy such a brilliant operator that he understands that he can solve corporate issues with tweets? Yeah. And creating a fan base? Like what other business operator has ever done that? And now, I don't know. Maybe it's all just coincidence and he wasn't that brilliant. But I'm sitting there going, he created his own reality. Or he distorted reality to a point that he created reality. Yeah. My only really strong opinion on him is I, that 420 tweet like really pissed me yeah. off because you know that then you're getting into market manipulation and stuff like that but i i agree with you and i i think that when i was before i understood how markets worked a little bit better and i was just like naive and had read some textbooks and i was like this is the way the world works and then i actually learned that i don't know anything i really discounted reflexivity and I really discounted narratives. And I thought a lot of it was stupid and, you know, like stuff that shouldn't go on. And now I, I wouldn't, I'm not the kind of person that's like comfortable betting on that, but I would never short it. I'll tell you what has legitimately scared me this year is looking at GameStop and looking at Arcagos, right? So the, the two events that really bookended Q1. Yeah. And I look at something like Arcagos and I go, Man, how many people were riding Viacom thinking they were geniuses when in reality you had someone who kept doubling down on their leverage, buying up all this stock, driving it upwards, right? Only to have it massively reflexively unwind on them. And, And we go, and I think I tweeted something about this out. I said, you know, whenever there's a market event, it's always supply and demand driven. Right. Oh, GameStop is a is a short squeeze and a gamma squeeze. And yeah, there's this fun narrative around Redditors. 
I don't know if that's 100% of the story, but right, it's it's this supply and demand mismatch. Arcagos Capital was a margin call, a supply and demand mismatch. And then yet still day to day when we talk about markets, it's for some reason we're always still talking about like, eh, here's what happened in politics and here's what the Fed said in some economic <laughs> perspective. And we totally ignore that when we have concrete evidence, it's always supply and demand. Yeah. And so like the part that I, and I don't know whether I'll ever have an answer to this, but the part that I go, man, like is everything day to day, month to month, year to year, these weird supply and demand hedging characteristics and option Vanna flow and all this sort of stuff driving way, way more of what's going on in markets in reality than true economic value or fundamental views. I don't know, but it's, it's one that as I've sort of spoken to more people and expanded my view beyond just sort of textbooks is one that keeps just sort of lingering in the back of my head. Yeah, man, I I completely agree. You know who I learned a lot from is, and he's a hard name to say right now, but he did it to himself, and I actually think I know who you're about to say. Uh, well, I don't. Oh God, I'm going to get myself in trouble with this. We're going to hit all. The hot we're going to we're going to get like a yeah triple X uh, rating on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm light touch, so whatever. If I say this is it, I three mean strikes it. and you're out, man. <laughs> well, this one's going to be a strike, I'm sure. But you know, like Ken Fisher. That guy wrote a lot of stuff that really formed that, like, if, if you ask, well, for a long time he wrote, like, stocks are going up because more there's more buyers than sellers. And sometimes people will say, what's going on in the market? And I'll just say there's more demand than supply. Yeah. And people think I'm joking, and they think that it's like a flipping comment or whatever. I, I mean it. Like, I that's what's going on. Now, the why behind it? I don't know. Maybe it's because it's a Saturday or, well, not a Saturday, right? But like, <laughs> maybe I, I have no idea what the reason is. But sometimes I think that there's a lot of false precision in trying to define what's going on behind, yeah. you know, and regardless of whether or not that guy got older and said some weird stuff, he wrote a lot of stuff that formed a lot of how I think. So I give well, him credit it, for that. I think as, as, uh, community we like narrative right as a species we like narrative and so when there is no narrative other than there were more buyers and sellers that doesn't fill news hours right nor does yeah. it really satisfy us because we want to know the why behind why were there more buyers and sellers i i wanted one of the i think it was an snl skit i think it was a weekend update you know they do their like little quips and it was one that's always stuck with me was this idea of you know, they're doing the weekend update and they're like, and on Friday, no shares traded hands on the New York Stock Exchange. Everyone finally had what they wanted. <laughs> and I, and I don't, that one's always stuck with me. I'm like, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I like that one. That is funny. <laughs> but but on this topic, like, so you, this is this is actually one of my pet peeves. There's all these studies out there that are like, man, people do the exact wrong thing. They're buyers at the top of the market and they're sellers at the bottom. And I always think to myself, why do you think it's the top? Why do you think it's the bottom? It's the bottom because everyone was selling. If no one was selling, if there wasn't a mismatch between supply and demand, do you think the market would be going down? Yeah, that's, you know, that's like, fair, yeah. And so maybe people aren't behaviorally great, but like those to me are to, like tautological facts. Like it has yeah, to be the bottom. Yeah, you can't have a bottom selling. when everybody's buying. That right, just doesn't exactly. make sense. Exactly. So to me, it's like, hmm. okay, are we misbehaving or is this like the whole, that's how market mechanics actually work? Hmm. I like I liked the way you put that. I don't think people are going to like that 
I think that people are oh, gonna. God. It's gonna like totally. It's gonna totally reframe. What, do, really, you, do we that, need to re-record this whole podcast? No, no, we're keeping all of it. We're gonna try. Who else can we? Uh, can we offend with this one? So oh, how did, yeah, I was gonna say we got Tesla, Bitcoin. I defended Ken Fisher for a second. Ken Fisher. Yeah. Jeez, we're in trouble. Well, let's keep it going. So how did you become a quant? I mean, you you've obviously, you know, I guess. If I can answer the question for you, I think you've thought long enough that you thought I should become a quant because all this is really, really hard. The short, long answer is I never intended to become a quant. I thought I would program video games for a living. Really? Yeah. When I was really young, around 12, I taught myself how to program. And the first thing I started programming was video games. In high school, I used to, on Friday nights, program video games for my Game Boy Advance. Really? And I Yeah, I took an elective study by myself and I programmed my own programming language and I programmed my own 3D game engine. I got to college to study computer science and quickly went, wow, I really don't want to do this for a living. <laughs> this is a lot of fun Why? as a hobby. <laughs> not fun for, for a career. Why not? You know, I hate to say it, a lot of it had to do with the people that I was around. Uh, I was like, these aren't the people I want to spend my day with. Hmm. And so, because I think what was unique for me was even though I sound like a total loser, and by the way, I am a total loser. I don't think you're a loser. I don't think You know, I still, I was captain of my lacrosse team. So I was this, in high school, I was this weird, like, it's just sort of the school I went to was like, the kids who were good at sports also were in theater. And I was the computer science nerd. And that like wasn't an issue for some reason. But so I get to college, don't like what I'm doing. This is like the 2005 through 2007 era, and iBanking was huge. All of my friends in college, once I got outside of the computer science realm, were going into you know, the big Wall Street banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, that sort of stuff, doing iBanking. And so I just sort of turned my eye towards finance and through a couple of bouts of good luck, ended up with some internships where I was going, you know what, there's... Someone I'm working with is using a real qualitative process. I have this computer science background. I did continue to go on and get my computer science degree, but I got the computer science background. I said, a lot of what they're doing, I can test rigorously with with computers and numbers and statistics, and I can help them streamline their process. And so Mm. that's just sort of where I got going. So I think for me, there was never an option. It was always going to be quant because that was just sort of how I operate very much in that sort of what can I automate? What can I look at from a computer systems process oriented view? Hmm. That's cool. How long did it take you to go out on your own? All right. So I've got a very weird story, which I'll only partially tell. The other part I only tell over beers in, in dark, okay. dark bar rooms. So well, we'll have to get in we some get CD and, place at some time. Exactly. And I'll hear the real stuff. So I actually... The, the first thing I ever did was strike out on my own accidentally. So I had these internships and this was 2007 and make a very, very long story short, I started working on some tactical models to help manage my own money. They were mostly like dynamic trend following strategies on ETFs. And through my father's financial advisor was introduced to a gentleman who thought it would be a very interesting product. And so I set up this company called Newfound Research to license him the data and the output of my models, which were really just more or less buy or sell trend signals on all these different ETFs, was named Newfound because I was a lake up in New Hampshire I used to go visit with my family and research because it produced research. I fully expected to shut the thing down within a year. 
I went on to Carnegie Mellon right after undergrad to go to their computational finance program, which is like a financial engineering derivatives math type program where you, at that time, the expectation was you go to Wall Street and you work on some sort of exotics desk. Of course, that was exactly when Wall Street was getting rid of all their exotics desks. <laughs> yeah, not, not the best timing for that. <laughs> but during that period, the gentleman whom I was licensing the research to ended up raising a billion dollars in assets oh my. In, this new, in this strategy. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. So yeah, I went- That used to be oh, a lot of money. Yeah, I know. So, so I went, oh, there's some appetite for this. And I said, my father was an entrepreneur and I always had sort of that entrepreneurial bug. And I said, this seems like a, I have a company with cash flow. Why not now? If not now, when? Yeah. Right? There's always, I can always go back to Wall Street. And so that's what I did. And, you know, I ran into about three dozen brick walls along the way, but I've been trying to figure it out ever since. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. The downside of that story, by the way, and this is the part I normally only tell over beers, <laughs> is that the reason the guy was able to raise so much money was because it was unfortunately what was later deemed to be advertising fraud by the SEC mm. that he was selling a back test as live. Ah. And, uh, so that that got pretty nasty with an SEC investigation around 2013, 2014. That sucks. Then you got this product that you built and you're really proud of and you're caught up in somebody else's integrity problem. Yeah, it was it was a pretty ugly situation. What was interesting is it gave me a very couple of interesting views into the industry, right? Of like what happens when you are caught up in this stuff. I yeah. mean, platforms just blackballed me. Said, oh, really? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. That sucks. Absolutely. Well, and I don't blame them, though. If there's yeah. any question as to your involvement, right? I, I hate to say it, but like we're in a commoditized business to a large degree. I look around at a lot of my peers and I go, I could probably replicate 98% of that. And the other 2% that might be their special sauce, year to year, you're not going to know. There's so much variance in edge, right? So I go, if, if like they don't need me necessarily, they can try to find someone who does something substantially similar. So you're going to get blackballed. And then a lot of times the industry, like the reporting, this was a big eye opener for me, is like my dealings with reporters weren't great. I wasn't trying to talk to reporters because it was an ongoing SEC investigation, but I found stuff that was reported mm. to just be factually incorrect. You mean like, like actual media reporting? Yeah, like reading what was Forbes or Fortune. I'd read these articles and I'd be like, they didn't even bother calling me to try to find out whether something was true or false. They just reported it as true and mm. it's definitively false, mm. right? So it totally changed. I actually learned about this whole thing called uh, the Gell-Mann amnesia effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. No. The basic idea is a lot, we'll be reading the paper and we'll start to read an article we're an expert in. And we'll go, wow, this reporter has no idea what they're yes! talking about. Dude, 100% this happens to me. And then I'll and read it, another article and I'll be like, why am I even trusting this when I just right. read something that I don't even agree with? Like, Well, the Gell-Mann amnesia effect is you don't even ask that second question. Well, you it just took assume, me a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's and so that wild. was a big eye opener for me as I was like, if all of these articles about me are wrong, why am I assuming any of these other articles about anyone else are even remotely correct? Yeah, man. Dude, 100%. One thing I will give, I, and I will, I got to come to the defense of reporters when it was the Robin Hood stuff, they were like very thorough in their fact checking. And yeah. I didn't, I didn't read any quotes that there was one article that I gave late in the week that I, I, I think that I gave them the material to chop it in a way that made 
it a little more salacious. I wish I hadn't phrased some stuff that way, and I, you know, whatever. For the most part, it was pretty good. Though somebody really messed up my quote at the end of the week, and I, I called them on it, and I was like, I did not say that. Like, that's not what I said, and they wouldn't retract it, but whatever. What are you going to do? It's wild how that how that can happen. And then yeah. the correction never gets the same attention Nope. that, you know, I don't know. I, I hosted it too fast. Yeah, that's right. I, I hosted a space with uh, Charlie Grant. We were going to do a podcast, but it just kind of didn't work out. We had technical difficulties. And he's somebody that I respect a lot. I, th- I think there are some really good reporters, but it can get tough at times. There are some great reporters. Like, don't I, I should make sure I don't stress that. Like, I don't trust any reporters. There are some really phenomenal reporters who take their job really seriously. But I think my baseline assumption now when I read an article is this might just be one side of the story or it might be written in a way to try to edge me. Like if I if I'm going to take it as fact, I need to do my own detailed analysis and try to dig up other corroborative information or or firsthand accounts. I just I don't take anything at face value anymore. Yeah. So how long did it take you to sort of get back? you know, to the point where you felt like you could build a business again and you weren't like on in the middle of the onslaught of negative coverage that wasn't even true. You know, the a lot of that stuff. So SEC investigations go at their own pace. The SEC is not beholden to go fast just for the sake of going fast. So I think their full investigation took a year and a half Something like that. Dude, that and, sucks. And I should be clear, this was not an investigation into me. This was an investigation into No, I know, my, but you're sort of like tied to it tangentially. Yep, and and as you can imagine, right, I was a witness to the whole affair, right? So they wanted to talk to me and they wanted to subpoena documents and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, not only does is that sort of like the negative air, like the press went away after a little bit. And then when the SEC closed the case, there was another kick up of press the world moves on pretty fast, I found. Like once new things happen, it's not a big deal anymore. But personally and emotionally, that stuff weighs on you for a long time. Yeah. You know, right? So I think it probably took me two or three years to really feel like I was back to like normal. Yeah. You know, it was probably my, my like the better part of my late 20s, I just sort of felt like probably from 25 to 28, 29 that I was like just... Probably in a bad emotional place. That's a tough time to go through that, too, like as a human. 25-year-old man is not exactly the most emotionally developed human out there. Sorry to my listeners. I'm not trying to take a (laughs) shot at you. I know know the demos in this pod. I love you all, but you also got to work on yourselves a bit. (laughs) You're finding your way, you know? Yeah. um, but, But I will also say those can be tremendous formative experiences if you're lucky. Yeah. Right? So I think for me... I came out the other side with just a lot more patience. And despite all the stuff that happened, I do still try to sort of ascribe to this Hanlon's razor idea of, I don't assume malice. I assume, the technically Hanlon's razor would say, don't assume malice, assume incompetence. But I just say, I just leave the first part. Don't assume malice. You know, like yeah. there's probably some other side of the story. And look, when someone wrongs you, I am sort of of the belief that, no one is the villain in their own story. I don't think you can really live with yourself if you think you're the villain. Like if something, someone wrongs you or does something wrong, they have justified it to themselves in a way that they're not the villain. And I think you need to 
hopefully have the patience to try to understand what is their worldview that they've done this. Yeah. And also like in the thing that sucks about the position that you're in is if everybody's writing this story about a guy who is fraudulently marketing something and you are a part of that story, I don't think that as time goes by, people are like, oh, we really got to think about what we said about Corey and that wasn't right, right? Like we got to we gotta reach out to him and say we're sorry or write a retraction about him because it's like you're not a big enough part of the story to right. matter once the story has moved on. But like to your life, that matters a shitload. Well, and it, right, and, and that, I think that's spot on. To the people writing this story, I was over to way to the right or left. But when it came to my own business and people Googling my name, yeah. And Forbes and Fortune and all that sort of stuff is the first stuff to come up. And as you would imagine, the first stuff that gets asked about in a due diligence questionnaire for me. Yeah, that, I mean, I've had that stuff come up five years later Yeah, that's in due brutal. diligence sessions. And you just, you have to deal with it. It'll probably continue to come up for years and years and years. At least I would expect to, you know, until mid this decade, I would expect it to continue to come up. Yeah, well... Now we're going to have a transcript of this conversation. So you're welcome. Wonderful. <laughs> I hope you rank low on SEO. <laughs> I'm sure I do, man. Have you seen the branding of this thing? It's terrible right now. But well, I'm going to. You know what? Flirting with models. That's where you got you got an edgy title of your podcast. So you invite a whole new crowd of people that will be disappointed by your content. Well, yeah, you do have a sexier title, don't you? I got my face up there, though. You, you know, do, and it is a pretty face, but... Thank you. you know, it's not pretty today. I'm looking at it like, oh my gosh, this is going to be video if we want it to be too. Uh, this is terrible. I can't believe I look <laughs> like this. I look like a schmuck. Oh, well. Um, but the voice is silky. That's always good. Dude, That's I got a face for radio. What can I say? <laughs> I, I, You know, it's funny. I just, it, for the longest time, I just loved audio entertainment, and it's weird to be living in a time that it all like exploded again, you know, thanks to I the was ear, earbuds. So- you know, going back to like the things you're too close minded about, I was so anti podcast for the longest time. Even like, I, even when I launched my first season, I was still like, I don't get this at all. Huh. I don't understand podcasts. And then I started to find some podcasts I really loved. And I will say, most of the ones I really love are not mainstream podcasts, they're pretty niche podcasts. So, what are you listening to? Oh, man. I got to, I got to. None of the kinky stuff, man. You got to give us the G-rated stuff. No, the G-rated stuff. So Alpha Exchange. So within the industry, Alpha Exchange. I think Hidden Forces does a great one. I mean, Odd Lots is a a big one, but like... Yeah, they do a good job. They do a good job. My buddies Resolve at Gestalt University. I got the business brew here. Boom. Look at that. You know? Shout out to that guy. You know, so like some some of those, like the Mutiny podcast, I love the interviews that they have Dude, with all managers. What you are doing with Jason is dope. I love oh, this you, Pirates man. of Finance stuff. Oh, thank you. How the hell did that come up? You know, so I've been talking with Jason for I don't know eight months, and he's about, a nice guy. Shout out, he's to a Jason. great guy. Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Jason Buck. Um, he he said I don't know three or four months ago, hey, I really want to do something with you. You know, what can we do together? And he's just like a very pro, let's get off the starting line. Let's yeah. just move forward one inch. I know I want to work with you. I don't know in what capacity. I just think we we get along really well. We have a lot of the same ideals. And both of us felt like the YouTube space just hadn't really been touched by professional finance. Right? There's a lot of like 
I don't know how to word this. I'm going to get in trouble with this, but like, no, there's dude, a lot it's, of bad it's, finance on there. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's People in finance are not create in general, are not spending their time thinking creatively about video in a way right. that's like super cool. Right. And, and I should be clear, like, so there's a lot of podcasts and I think like the stuff you guys do with the live recording is awesome. I think it's a great way to engage. It's using YouTube as a platform, but it's not really using video as a medium. Yes. If that makes any sense. Yes, it makes perfect and sense. And I was seeing all these videos out there of from creators in the finance space who were promoting, hey, you know, take $10,000 and use it as a down payment to buy a house and like all these crazy, you know, like all that stuff. And I said, you know, Dude, I they're think the there's- worst. I fucking hate those people. I mean, whatever. You got to do your own hustle and like some may have yeah. a good like reason well, to do it, but it comes off as so skeezy. And they all transitioned into, into the stock market last year because they're all oh, locked really? in their house. So they're all talking about what stocks they're buying and oh, all that brutal. sort of stuff. And they're all stock market experts now. Thank God I don't know that. Yeah, you imagine if I spent my time finding out this information. That would be well. Terrible. Don't go look now that you know about it. <laughs> you'll you'll only, it'll only upset you. But I, I I said to Jason, you know, I think there's room for a casual finance show that's hopefully as entertaining as it is educational, right? That doesn't take itself too seriously. That is not just guest format where we're bringing someone on and chatting, but is like we have a bit of an arc to it, and we're you know, we're having fun with it. And so that's what we're going for. I think, I think this week is episode seven. Our it's goal great, is man. to do you're, a you're... whole year of it and see how it goes. Dude, the video production on it, like the way I, I, I can close my eyes and picture it's like a blue palm tree or something. And the, and the yeah. way that like the light hits it and stuff, I was like, these guys are pretty talented at what they're doing. Who's doing the work? You guys well, have somebody like helping finding, you? Yeah, so I mean, it's a little. Uh, you don't have to going, divulge all your secrets, no, I'll, but I'm happy to divulge it. So some of that stuff, like you can just go out and hire an artist. Yeah. All right. So we've got a great artist who helps us out. the The intro song we hired an artist to do for us. Nice. Every week, our process is on Sunday. We just start texting back and forth like madmen. Like, what are we doing this week? Yeah. What are your ideas? And then a lot of times it's like, let's just record thirty minutes of us on Zoom which turns into a five-minute conversation, like it just gets edited way down. But that serves as the backbone, and then we go out and get all the other shots we need. And a lot of times it's just like ripping from YouTube or recording a screen share or whatever it is to get that content. And then at least for like a lot of the interstitials of like The Simpsons and South Park and that sort of stuff is just my juvenile humor. Yeah, but are you doing that, or are you saying I want this clip in here? And no, I'm I'm actually doing that. God damn, dude, you got to be spending tons of time on that. The first one I spent a ton of time on. The latter stuff, it actually goes pretty quickly now. Yeah, I've got a process. And what's interesting is, is again, people would go, "You're supposed to be a portfolio manager. Like, aren't why aren't you doing that?" The reality is, I used to spend hours and hours and hours writing research notes. That was just writing up the research I had already done. Yeah. To the benefit of readers, I guess. But like uh, now at this point, I don't do that. And so I I don't have kids. My wife works West Coast hours and we're living in central time right now. And so there's a couple hours every night that I'm sort of just doing my own thing. So why can't I spend my own time having fun? Dude, you know? I love it, man. I think it's like so creative. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So what are you going to, I mean, you don't know what you're going to do. That's how these things go. Right. But what are you going to do when people find it and love it? Then you're going to have like, uh, then there's like, yeah, that's right. It's kind of what I feel a little bit now. Not that like everybody loves it, but also thank you all. 
<laughs> I'd like to thank all my fans. I would, yeah. man. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why people listen. I, I shouldn't say that about myself, but it's very, very humbling to be in this spot right now. So I'm taking this a totally different direction. After I published my first season of my podcast, I was like, I don't think I'm going to do it again. I'd heard from a couple friends like, look, you should really do a podcast. You're alienating an entire audience by only doing written content. There's people who, who want to listen. And oh, by the way, there's a connection that's made when someone can hear your voice. Yeah. That they will never get through your written word. So I tried the first season and it just felt like it was so much work. I mean, you know, that first episode you put out, you probably put 10 that's times brutal. the amount of hours in. It's brutal. Getting off the starting line. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that again. That was a lot of work. And it was well received. Don't get me wrong. Like it was well received, but I just went, that was just painful. And I'm at a conference in Canada. And this woman taps me on the shoulder and says, are you Corey Hofstein? And I said, yeah, how, how'd you know? And she goes, I recognize you by your voice. I love your podcast. Wow. And I was like, I guess I'm doing season two. <laughs> <laughs> turns, turns out this is what I'm yeah. going to do. <laughs> and so, yeah, so to, I guess like it's, it's interesting because I do get a lot of people going, I love your podcast. I love your podcast. It, for me, it's perpetual just feeling like a fraud. Because I'm going, you have no idea how much time I spend pre-preparing and like creating these questions. And then, by the way, I just ask 10 to 12 questions. My guests do all the work, right? So I'm just piggybacking on on their brilliance, which I'm I'm happy to do. Thank you to my guests who come on. But like everyone's like, oh, you have such a great podcast. I'm like, well, thank all my guests. Don't don't thank me. But yeah, yeah. So what will I do if Pirates of Finance becomes at all interesting to people? It I is, dude. I'm... It's too good. People, if you listen to this, go check it out. Like the, the video know? production is dope, and I like what you guys talk about. It's a little bit more macro than the stuff that I spend my time on, but I really like listening. So, I mean, I can divulge what this week's is is going to be. I am trying to hit topics that are maybe a little bit more fun and mainstream. This week, we're talking about investing in scotch. Huh. Like, right? Like, I, and and I think what's at least fun for me is like these are topics that I might talk to someone about at a bar. And, and getting the opportunity to dive into them a little last week's where we talked about the impact of sun cycles on inflation. I was like, this is the dumbest topic I have ever looked into. And then did but you it's end up kind liking of it? Fun. It's kind of fun to do it. Like, you know, again, about just being dismissive. Yeah. All right, I won't be dismissive. I'll actually try to do, see if there is something here. And you know what? Even if at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything there, it's still fun to go outside your usual realm of like, at least for me, pure quant finance. Yeah. Well, it's obvious that, you, it, I mean, just like listening to you when you talk on your, on your podcast. And I do know that there's a halo effect. I get it too. People think I'm way smarter than I am just because I have talked to smart people, but please keep thinking it. It's very flattering. <laughs> <laughs> but like you've done the reps to know your product as well as you need to know your product, like sitting there and continuing to look over the same thing. I don't think you grow very much. Right. Right. And, and I'm certain that, I mean, you were talking about some of your, like some of the more mind bending episodes that you had in season two, I bet that improves your process overall and maybe makes you think about, Hey, should I consider this factor differently? Right. And that's going to be time better spent at this point in your career. I, would I will tell you, like a perfect example of this is last season, I had an episode with a gentleman named Jeffrey Baird of Merit Point Partners. And Jeffrey 
manages a fund where they provide commodity exposure through convex instruments. Yeah. So a lot of things like options trading on futures. I'm not going to lie. I didn't understand a ton of that. I was trying to keep up and I was like, I don't fully understand what this dude does. I just know he used convexity a lot, right? And it's one of these topics that I was like, wow, there's some podcast episodes that I'm like, oh, you're a, you're an equity factor investor. Great. I don't even need to prep for this. There's other episodes that I'm like, I need to spend 17 hours trying to even understand the first 10 words that came out of your mouth. Yeah. He was one of those. But one of the things we talked about at the end of the episode was, and this is like got right at the end, was talking about when you invest with a convex instrument like an option, when you are correct, let's say you're making a directional bet with like a call option for the stock to go up. When the stock goes up, your position moves further towards at the money potentially even in the money and your sensitivity goes up to one. So your position goes from like being just a little sensitive to how the stock moves to now all of a sudden it's like you basically own the stock. Yeah. Well, you flip from gamma to Delta exposure. Exactly. Your Delta exposure goes way up. Right. And, and he was saying his risk framework is one where he always thinks about maximum drawdown from peak. And so interestingly enough, as As you are more correct in your bets and they pick up delta, your risk goes up because you have an increasingly linear position. Why is this relevant to me at all? Well, in some of the strategies I manage, we have call option exposure. And earlier this year, the market was running like crazy. And the implied sort of beta, rough back of the napkin beta estimate of of some of the strategies I was running had gone from a 1 to a 1.35. Huh. And I was estimating that if the market continued to run, they could go as high as a 1.8. Huh. And I'm sitting there going, now you're levered beta more than now you're levered beta. Be. And this is a problem for two reasons. One, this sort of idea of Am I playing with house money? I mean, the position was correct, but like, no, I should think about risk as being drawdown from peak. And then two, when you manage an open-end fund, if someone comes into the fund when your beta is now a 1.3 or a 1.5, they didn't get any of the benefit of the run-up of the position mm-hmm. being correct, but they get all the risk on the yeah, downside. Yeah, all the downside. And so that, that episode was recorded a year ago, and here I am in January going back to it going okay, I've spoken to someone that was talking about this exact problem and let me go back to what he said and let me let me reach out to my network of people and let me reach out to him and think about ways in which I need to rethink what I'm doing potentially and restructuring these positions to take this risk down. That's dope. That's exactly why you do this stuff. Exactly. In a different way, Naked Wines, the decision, whether or not it was right or wrong, the reason I flipped was my conversation with Ian Castle, right? Because he said, when you're, when you're investing in something that is small, you've got to watch it. And maybe I was overly sensitive and maybe that's part of my growth curve and maybe like I should have given it more a longer leash. I don't care. I'm not going to lose to stuff that I can't deal with losing to. It won't happen. Yeah. And it's all because of that conversation with Ian. It's cool, and man. I, I think one of the interesting things about the podcast as well, when you do it or just Uh, Generally, I mean, this happens with any conversation. Ideally, even if you don't have a podcast of your own, you're out there talking on forums or on Twitter or your own network. Like these ideas cross pollinate. And so even if you weren't talking about naked wine specifically, like other things that people say will 
create thoughts around naked wines for you, right? Yeah. And and so it's like, mm, I wasn't like, and I, and I think this happens a lot. You get blinders on with your own investment style. I know I do. So I'll speak to myself personally. I have certain high conviction views that are hard to shake until you take me out of my lane and you make me talk about a type of investing style I'm very uncomfortable about, like deep value investing. I am very uncomfortable talking about deep value investing and I'll just sit there and listen and someone will say something and I'll go, wow, that's a totally different way of thinking about the problem that actually has important implications for what I'm doing on the quantitative side that I never would have come to on the quantitative side because I was too focused on what I thought was right. Hmm. Why, why do you have problems with devalue? Like what is it that you're sort of anchored to that, that sort of precludes that your mind from going to the deep value framework? What can deep value learn from you is maybe a different way to ask the same question. Well, I don't know if deep value can learn anything from me. I, I think Everybody can learn from me, each other, man. That's, that's BS, you know? I think what precludes me from the deep value framework is I believe I suffer from a tremendous amount of sunk cost fallacy. So one of the reasons I like systematic investing, quantitative investing, is because I can explore ideas in a sort of low touch way versus if I spend 40 hours looking yeah. into a business, I'm going to convince myself I should buy that business. Yeah. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And so to a certain extent, like, and by the way, that might be how I tricked myself into buying some, some crypto going, going back to the beginning of this conversation. Like I know that about myself. And so yeah. it's just not an investment style that works for me. You know, who's the like, man about this is Paul Halal. And really? I, dude, I, I've only talked to him like very briefly. I'm not trying to act like I know Paul at all, but I listened to him give a talk and he talked about all the due diligence that he did on this idea. And it was like six months and millions of dollars. And I don't think they did that deal. I'm almost certain they didn't. And even if they did, I walked up to him after and I said, either how did you walk away or how would you have walked away at the end of the day like how do you put that much resources into an idea and not know you're gonna buy it and he looked at me stone cold and he was just like i hate to lose mm. and i was like oh dude that's some bill belichick type shit you yeah. know <laughs> like but you know that dude's i mean he's investing he's got one company maybe two right and like he is all in and i i don't know i mean i I know enough about me to know that I don't have that in me. But when I like when I looked at his face and he said that to me, I was like, one day I'm going to invest with you. I don't know when, but when yeah. the stars align, I'm betting on you because he's a monster. I have mad but respect for that. You have to be able to internalize that investment framework and process, right? That it that it works for you. I, w I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, right? I told you. I wouldn't either. I can't buy individual stocks. I have to buy baskets and they have to be some sort of either thematic or, or factor or style, right? That's why I'm buying them. Like when you tell me there's Tesla in the momentum basket, I kind of want to throw up, <laughs> but am I happy I had it all last year? Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty happy I had it, you know? Yeah. What do you think about momentum makes it outperform? I mean, I know Greenblatt has said, I know it, it outperforms, but I couldn't stick with it if it didn't work for a while. It seems to me like, it almost has to work, but I know that that's like a really stupid thing to say out loud about a financial concept. 
you know, there's really no good rational argument as to why momentum would outperform from a risk perspective. A lot of it is entirely behavioral and it's just people underreact to new information, right? They anchor to their prior beliefs. And then on the other end of that trend is a whole bunch of hurting. Yeah. And all you're trying to do is exploit the systematic misbehavior of other investors. I think what you tend to see is like, I think with growth names, at least for the last decade, momentum was right on growth because as an entire industry, and this is my belief, by the way, as an entire industry, the dot-com era taught us to hate growth and love value. Mm-hmm. And so and be terrified took- of high multiples. And, exactly. Yeah. Especially when they're tech names. Yeah. And so mm. it, it caused an entire industry. Dude, can we rewind 10 years and have this conversation? Is that possible for us to do? Right. Well, so the question is, what are we teaching ourselves today that we think like is, is one of those things that stays in our head that'll make it hard for us to think about the way to invest in the future. And that's one of the things I like about quantitative is that I don't know what I'm buying, Yeah, you know, And, and that's not to say there aren't biases that are embedded but like momentum in particular is just a chameleon of a style and when momentum as a factor is underperforming as it did in q1 so it did really well in the first sort of six weeks and then fell apart it had a complete crash in q1 all that means is the momentum factor is about to flip-flop the stuff it hates is about to become the stuff it loves the stuff it loves is about to become the stuff it hates no attachment right yeah and so you're seeing it right now where momentum went from these high quality tech companies to non-profitable tech companies to now it's moving into the cyclicals and it does not care at all. Yeah. Someone once explained it to me as sort of being the market factor that runs into the party and drops acid in the punch bowl. <laughs> like it's just, it's pushing flows We're getting around crazy, like crazy. Folks. <laughs> right? But, but here's the thing that I think is crazy about momentum. It's like, okay, how many people are actually momentum investors? Well, there's the systematic momentum funds of which total assets isn't that big, but there's a lot of multi-factor quant funds that incorporate a little bit of momentum. But then you start talking about a firm like DFA, which is a systematic small value shop. Well, guess what? They have a trading screen where they won't buy any company that has negative momentum. All right. So momentum changes have a big impact there. How many people are looking to buy a value name when just visually the catalyst changes, right? They go, oh, this name is something I like, but the stock price is dropping. Let me wait for a bottom. Yeah. Right. They're doing the same thing. And then I sort of think about what does momentum do from a media perspective, from a social media perspective? And how does that sort of shiny object syndrome help push these things along? I just think that momentum has a lot more impact beyond just the explicit incorporation in certain strategies. I hate to admit this stuff because it feels so not Buffett, but- I think about that stuff a lot. I think about like not only what do I think the true value of what I'm looking at is, but also what's the narrative and like where am I in that in that cycle? And I I try not to I don't try to play the narrative cycle, right? But I do try to be cognizant of it. I I think that not doing it for me doesn't make sense. Like it just it it's too reflexive to not pay attention to in in, in my opinion. I agree. I think, again, going back to just my personal personality here, you talk about the true value of something. I just always struggled to be like, I know the true value of Coca-Cola stock. Yeah. It is just so hard for me 
to fund. And I can even say, okay, maybe I know a distribution where I'm comfortable and this is my expected value. But when I think through all the second and third order nonlinear events that could affect or propel that business upward or downward, it really hurts my head. (laughs) It really does. And again, going back to the, if I spend enough time on it, I'm just going to convince myself to buy it. I I know I cannot buy individual companies. I just, because I'll never be comfortable with what fair value is, no matter how much analysis I do on the business. And so for me, it's around what characteristics do I like in securities as a group? Knowing that I'm going to buy some securities that shouldn't be in the basket and get lucky on some others. And hopefully on average, I'm buying the characteristics that I think drive higher expected returns versus peers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you you had a podcast in your second season with the guy. Was it a family office that the Investor Business Daily guy? Yeah. 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 What's his name? Jason Thompson. Yeah. So you guys are talking about process. And I laid in bed last night looking up at the ceiling, wondering if I had a good answer. Like if somebody was like, what's your process? And especially now that my portfolio has morphed so much from like some of these, like, I don't want to say junky names, but I have cop to like looking at stuff like Sears in the past and like Cleveland Cliffs and some of those names. And now I've got you know, like names like Disney and Transdime that I bought, you know, at way lower prices. And I've said, sometimes I say like, I don't know how people are, are buying it here. That's not the comment. The The reason that they're buying it is they're probably doing better work than me and their models are more accurate and they, or, or they just are going to buy it until they sell it. And I don't really know what the answer is. What I do know is I'm looking for certain things in the businesses and I'm trying not to overcomplicate the decision to buy a good business at a good price. I'm trying not to fuck that up. And like, (laughs) I don't, I don't know exactly how to do that, but I can tell you like with charter, if, if the retention algorithm ever slips, I'm out. Like I'm not messing around curate. I have a view on like how long, I'm okay. So the higher that equity goes, it's a really weird situation in my head because the higher the equity goes, the longer I need to have confidence in the asset duration. And Mm. I'm not that comfortable in something that has a ton of change, like betting on asset duration. But the lower that that the equity goes, the more confident I am that like Greg Maffei is just going to Pac-Man that equity. So there's kind of like a band of of comfort and the lower it goes the more excited i get and the higher it goes i just get like kind of skittish yeah so i don't know like i have that framework for different securities but then i look at some of these guys that are like you know i don't know if it's mental flexing on twitter or something or if it's just like peacocking or whatever and it's like how do you know which which security is going to outperform or whatever it's like Dude, I'm just trying to survive out here. (laughs) I did pretty well. I'm trying not to mess it up. Maybe I I underperformed. That's not really the end of the world. I got this podcast thing that's going okay. Like It's all a portfolio. I do love the various ideas out there because that's what makes a market, right? At the end of the day, you need difference in ideas. We can't all agree on security prices or where things should be going. I love that episode with Jason you mentioned where he, he worked, I think he still works at the William O'Neill family office, who is the founder of Investors Business Daily. And for those who don't know, William O'Neill really prescribed a growth-oriented framework. And a lot of it was around- Didn't relative. he say that, that William invested like a million dollars in the 60s? Yeah, I think that's right. 
yeah, to like to to do the R and D on this growth strategy. Yeah. Which, if you think about that in today's dollars, that's not an insignificant sum of money. No, no. And so, what's crazy, right? I love that episode. Not first of all because Jason's a good friend and he's brilliant, so I think it's a great episode. But that episode annoys more people because your value <laughs> investors listen to it and they go, "This is not investing." And quants <laughs> listen to it and quants go, "Growth is not a factor." Right. And, and everyone hates it. And yet the track record of that firm, if you ever get to see it, you know, again, it's a family office. So very few people get insight into it is phenomenal. And they have a deep, deep research bench internally, a whole team of quants. That's just, I guess, more mentally flexible and willing to look at the world a different way. And you talk to someone like Jason and you're like, man, you run a concentrated portfolio of five to eight SaaS businesses, and he does, but he knows them inside and out, and they have flexible rules that allow them that when the prices start to fall, right, they operate under a max drawdown type risk profile. He just cut risk in March last year, waited for the market to bottom, thought the the valuations were too cheap, bought them all up again. I mean, you can only imagine the type of return he had last year, Yeah, right? Insane. But most people just are unwilling to accept that sort of investment framework. And maybe that's why it works. Or maybe they've just been getting lucky for decades. Who knows? But I love sharing that episode with people because I think it annoys the maximum number of listeners. Well, now you can share this one. Yeah, this I think one. We'll, be, we'll have covered off and cross-referenced, which is fantastic. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> with some of the factors, like how did you come up with how often you rebalance and stuff like that? Like how, Like when momentum breaks, how long... How did you think through how how long you're comfortable riding momentum breaking before like rebalancing into the new basket and stuff yeah. like that? So there's sort of two considerations that I think about. One is like, what is your holding period? And it's sort of weird for a systematic investor to be to talk about like, I'm going to buy a stock and I'm definitely going to hold it for six months and then I'll think about selling it. But what you find when you start to analyze a lot of these factors is certain holding periods seem to do better than others because it sort of takes a while for that signal to propagate, right? You have this momentum signal and it maybe decays really quickly or decays really slowly. So momentum typically decays pretty quickly, like one month. Value, I can buy Mm -hmm. a value stock. That signal might not decay for three years. Like the mean Mm -hmm. reversion is really slow. So I would argue if I buy a value name, I probably want to own it for three years. And by the way, Mm. if I think it's a quality value name, I might want to hold it for five years because I think not only is it undervalued, but I want the compounding earnings benefit as well. Huh. So there's this analysis where you say, okay, how long do I want to hold it? The problem fundamentally becomes, and this is like an area of obnoxious research for me that people on Twitter are tired of hearing about, is that when I say I want to buy this stock for five years, you know, does that mean I'm building a portfolio at the end of this year and then doing nothing for five years? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, let's use that extreme example. If I did that, I'm missing a lot of opportunities along the way, right? Yeah. It's very obvious I'm taking a huge amount of luck in like, I formed my portfolio today. That's right. Well, yeah. what if I had formed it six months from now and the value set is totally different, right? Yeah. So, and then do you ladder into it? And then do, how much does cash drag work? Exactly. Like, yeah. So this is something people don't think about a lot, but it's actually hugely meaningful. Like when you look at factor ETFs, so momentum ETFs right now in Q1, 
if you were continuously rebalancing a momentum portfolio, you would start to sell out of tech. Probably about a month ago, you would have been selling out of tech, buying financials, buying energy, buying industrials, buying materials. That's sort of like a broad sector change. But these momentum ETFs that are out there either rebalance quarterly or twice a year, biannually. And the way the schedule lined up was that most of the the ones that were going to rebalance, rebalanced in February. And the Mm. momentum transition didn't start happening until maybe early to mid-March. And so they're not going to rebalance again until May. Huh. So that is a big gap, right? Yeah. Of like this systematic process going, man, you're pretty off sides for where momentum's supposed to be. Huh. So I sort of view it as like the way I think this should be done is if you have a fixed holding period, and it's debatable whether you should have a fixed holding period, but let's say, let's keep it back to value. Let's say I want to build a value portfolio where every stock I buy, I'm going to hold for five years. The way I might think about doing that is I would start this month, come up with my basket of stocks, and I would take one sixtieth of my portfolio and buy those stocks. Okay. And then next month, I would do the same thing with another 60th of my portfolio. And after five years, I would go back to that very first 160th of my portfolio, sell all the stocks, and buy the new basket. But what are you doing with the other 59 60ths while you're waiting to deploy it? Well, so, so the question becomes, all right, so are you going to take five years to set this up? Yeah. And so what this is where being a quant really helps. I can go back in time and tell you three years ago, this is what I would have bought. Uh, and this is how it would have drifted. And this is what I am now buying today to backfill that. Ah, uh, so basically you would go back through time and then no matter where the stuff is, you pretty much you're buying. are buying it. And then if it's sort of out of what your rule set would be, it really doesn't matter if it's five years old because it's going to be the next 60th that you rotate into exactly. anyway. Exactly. Huh. And so, you know, this is this is one of these concepts that people in the world of public equities don't think about a lot, but it's exactly how private equity works, right? Any private equity investor knows the risk of vintage, right? If you yeah. did private equity in 2008 versus 2011 versus 2015, you got very different returns. So you don't ever just do one vintage. You deploy some capital in 2008, and then they do another fund in 2009. And you allocate to that fund. And you do it in this revolving fashion so that you're allocated to maybe five to seven vintages over time. So you're not susceptible to to the cycle of the economy, right? Yeah. Same thing happens with certain types of stocks. Value stocks go in and out of favor. And the more unconstrained you are, value might be all energy stocks one day. And in the future, it might be tech stocks, right? And so if you constrain yourself to only buying at one time of the year and not sort of continuously refreshing your portfolio, you are potentially leaving a lot of opportunity on the sidelines. Are you allowed to talk about your fund structure on this show or no? Uh, no is a fine answer. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a little answer. tough. I can talk generically. No, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put you in a weird spot. I was just thinking like, you know, some, some structures have tax advantaged loopholes right so like how does that play into it but we don't need to talk about that so what happened to you last year that that you wrote your thread about yeah so for a very long time there's a couple 
fun, well, let me, let me back up. There's a couple fundamental beliefs I have as a, just as an investor. One of them is this idea that risk is never really destroyed. It's just transformed. I'll come back to what I mean by that. The second is that the best way, best way to manage risk is diversification, but people are too narrow-minded about the idea of diversification. That diversification should not just be what you invest in, but also how you make those investment decisions and when you make those investment decisions. So we just actually talked about that whole when idea, right? There's, if you yeah. diversify when you're buying things, it, it has a big impact. I like that discussion, by the way. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're very welcome. Okay, cool. Now I hope I enjoy the next one. So, well, now it's a lot to live up to. <laughs> so for so a lot of what I tried to say to investors when I when we were talking about managing money is, look, you, you allocate via a 60-40 traditionally. So I work with a lot of financial advisors who are allocating a traditionally globally allocated 60-40. That's one way of managing risk. A 60-40 portfolio is very, very sensitive to certain economic environments. I think of risk as like this big ball of Play-Doh. And the way you construct your portfolio puts that Play-Doh into different sort of sensitivity buckets. And I look at a 60-40 and I say, man, you are very sensitive to economic growth shocks and inflation shocks most of the time. And if that's the bet you want to make, fine, just be aware of it. But don't you yeah. think it might be a little bit better to do to effectively take your hand, smash it down on the Play-Doh and smear it out in different sort of regimes? And so that to me is what I mean by risk is never destroyed. It's just transformed. You don't get rid of Play-Doh. You just sort of smear it around. And so the way I think about doing that is, okay, you can diversify what you're investing in and that'll help. But how you're making certain investment decisions will also help like Buying stocks and buying value stocks, as it turns out, gives you very different economic sensitivities, right? Buying stocks or trend following on stocks gives you very different economic sensitivities. And so what I effectively said was, look, you're right now you're using bonds. Most investors use bonds as a ballast to their portfolio. Trend following is another great way to manage risk. I'm going to provide an all equity portfolio. U.S. equity portfolio that is going to be predominantly trend-following driven. That can be 100% invested or go 100% to cash. And this is more or less the type of portfolio. Oh, fuck, dude. And you just got waxed. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. It, it, gets, it gets better. So this is the type of portfolio that I helped provide research for going back to 2008. And then launched on my own around 2015 as a fund. And then effectively what happened is the way we constructed the portfolio is we said, we're going to equally weight the primary U.S. sectors. So we're going to have a, you know, a tenth of our portfolio in communication services and a tenth in technology and a tenth in financials. We're going to trend follow on each of those sectors. And when the sector goes off, we'll reallocate some capital to maintain our beta. When five or more sectors go off, we'll start building cash in the portfolio. Said three ultimate tilts. Right? When you equal weight sectors, you end up with a bit of a size bias, more towards small cap. You obviously have a value bias because you're <laughs> overweight financials and underweight technology. And we had a, t a trend tilt. Uh, so Jesus. over the last three years, value and size really went against us. And then in 2020, yeah. right? you basically, like if I were to say to someone, 
hey, I run an intermediate term trend following strategy. We're about to go from all time highs to a 35% drawdown within a four week period and then recover within a two month period. How do you think trend following would do? Most people would agree it probably isn't going to do great. And we did fine during the drawdown. I think we sort of added about a thousand basis points between us and the market, which isn't bad for the speed of the drawdown. It was really in the recovery that we got hurt because not only did we sort of not get in as fast as we should have, we got whipsawed with the trend following, but then what we were buying was mostly value tilted, which really struggled until the end of last year. Yeah. So it just caused a big rethink for me, sort of two parts. One, over time in business and managing an asset management firm, as much as I can try to say to clients, you need to think about your portfolio holistically, right? Again, this idea that risk is never destroyed, only transformed. And like, don't think about these as line items. Think about the net exposure you have of across what, how, and why, or, or what, how, and when. Clients are still going to line item. Yeah. Know, right? Yeah. And the second part was just, coming out of March saying, I fundamentally am not understanding something in this market. Like looking back, when you have a systematic process, unless you're willing to override it, you can't just step in and say, okay, the, the Fed is saying they're gonna start buying corporate bonds and that fixes the liquidity issue and the solvency issue at the same time. And things are truly different at the yeah. speed at which they're willing to move. When you have a systematic process built on a hundred years of data. A lot of no, that- it's tough to do that. It just doesn't work. Yeah, and if you're going to break it then, then when else would you break it? Right. And then you start to get into some discipline issues. Those would not be questions yeah. I would want to answer. I'd rather, I would rather answer the question, why was this the one-in-a-lifetime event that this didn't work, rather right. than when are you going to break your rules going forward? That's a, one is an easier question to sort of yeah. wrap your head around. The other thing is a client could, in I, I guess I'm thinking of two things. The way to to mitigate the risk of that happening again would be like deep out of the money put options, right? Yep. Deep out of the so, money puts, or interestingly enough, I would actually argue deep out of the money calls because what you find with trend following is it actually, unless you talk about like a 1987 one day drop, trend following did pretty well actually in March. It was in the rebound yeah, that, that trend missed. following missed. Right? You know what I couldn't get my head around is all the freaking vol that was in the options market on the way up. I was like, I just don't know that I want all that theta decay. Yeah. Like you're paying a lot. Yeah. Which, you know, it turned out to be the wrong decision, but I was looking at options and I was just like, man, you're paying so much. Yeah. I mean, there's the world of options is one where there's so many. Unless did I, did I, did I say that wrong? The vol results in higher theta decay, right? Or am I thinking of Vega? I if there's a high implied vol, you would, I think, generally expect there to be higher premium, theta. right? And yeah. So it's your theta decay is higher. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad I said that right. Sometimes I'm a little bit outside my no, no, no. circle here. And, and right, that's going to happen, right? So you go, okay, vol is at 80, you know, not that VIX is the right measure, depending on where you're looking at the surface, but let's just use that as our, as our broad stroke. So VIX is at 80 and you want to start buying call options, you know, how much exposure can you really get? But I think if... If you're looking at that and you're maybe buying call spreads and you're just thinking about it as levered upside exposure, yeah. you know, it, it might work. I'm going to dumb it down for anybody that's not understanding what's going on. What Corey and I are talking about right now is when your implied volatility in options is very high, the option is expensive relative to the intrinsic value of the option. So 
if your stock is at 15, say, and it's got a huge amount of volatility in the option price, and you buy like a 30 call because you think that the that the stock is going to go up, you can go to 35 and still lose money because you got, they call it vol crush in the industry, right? So you're paying so much. If you think about it as a tire, the tire is inflated with so much air that even if you're directionally right on the price, the air can compress. It's basically like multiple compression in an equity scenario. Yeah, I think that's right. And so especially when you're buying at the bottom and you expect volatility to come in, right? Not only are you saying vol is high now, and so I have to pay a big premium, which means yeah, I might have a strike of 30, but when I add in the cost of the premium, the stock actually has to get above 45. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. But then yeah, that's as vol comes that's down, right, you're actually losing value. So it, it yeah, it's, it's a tough one. So the ultimate choice I made, I, I ended up writing a paper called Liquidity Cascades after going into a deep, dark research hole that said, look, I think there's all these narratives are out there that the Fed is having a meaningful impact passive investing in ETFs and index structures are having a meaningful impact and that there's all these volatility contingent players either explicitly buying options or using strategies that are correlated to what's happening in the vol market that is creating these sort of coincidental cycles of everyone's getting crowded into equities and then some sort of exogenous shock happens and everyone's forced to delever at the same time, causing these rapid decays. My view is I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And so what I wanted to do with our strategy was say, I don't want to be 100% trend following anymore. I, I still want trend following, but I want to design this as a barbell where I have things that should do really well when the market runs to the upside and things that should do really well when the market crashes. And again, the whole idea is to diversify internally how we're doing that. So it's not just style tilts and trend following and some convexity and some bond exposure. It's, it's all of that combined. And it's, to me, a more turnkey solution. It's going to have, in theory, ideally less tracking error to the market than a pure trend following solution would. It's not going to be the hero trade that trend following will be when trend following is right. But it also won't be the loser that trend following will be when trend following is wrong. So you're just sort of diversifying more and across the how we're managing money. And at least for me personally, I, I do think it's really important not only that a manager is invested in the strategy, but like you should probably build the strategy the manager wants how they their money to be managed. Right. Yeah. And so for me, it was like I was doing all this other stuff in my PA to to accompany my pure trend following strategy. Once all that got incorporated into the strategy itself, it was like, great, now I can just move more money into my own fund, right? Because yeah. it's now more all-encompassing. So I don't think it's a huge... Operationally, there's a more significant departure from the way the fund is managed today than the way it used to be managed. But philosophically, I don't think it's very different from what I've been preaching for years and years and years. Yeah. I guess the alternative... And I'm going to get this wrong because you've thought about this way longer than I have. But I guess you could argue that like you could put that back to the client and say, I still think that, you know, this is still the right strategy. And maybe like Chris Cole or somebody that does vol trading, right, should get like a little allocation yeah. for like the one time that this doesn't work. Do, yep. How do you think through like what you're giving up versus what you're getting there? Is it is it it sounds to me like it's now you have a product that you're really comfortable with your own money in. Not that you weren't anyway, 
I don't know how to frame this, and I'm going to edit this question just so you know, so that we're both comfortable with this conversation. No, I, you know I what get I'm... what you're saying. I get what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even edit it because... Okay. Look, there's sort of two answers here, and this is where I think it's interesting being an asset manager and a portfolio manager. Being an asset manager, you have to run a business. And there's a, the very stark reality that you can tell a client, hey, you should allocate to me, you should allocate to bonds, you should allocate to a long vol manager. The restriction is they might not even be able to allocate to a long vol manager, yeah. right? And then and do I want to be the one- a good one. Right, like, do I want to be I the one sourcing that for them? Right, yeah, that's no. tough. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You know, again, shout out to Jason Buck at Mutiny. He's that's the problem he's trying to tackle and solve with what he's doing. But but still, it's not an easy problem to solve. And certainly, I don't think there's a lot of forty act vehicles that give you access to that long vol type exposure. The other interesting thing to think about is, let's say my portfolio worked perfectly. March twenty twenty comes around, my portfolio goes to cash and preserves all of its capital, and the advisor has a whole bunch of other stuff that sells off. My relatively decreases in size compared to my fund within their relative asset allocation, and they rebalance at the bottom of March. And they take away from my fund, sell assets to buy stocks that have been sold at a discount. And those stocks do really, really well. At the end of the year, who gets credit for that? That doesn't show up in my returns, but their entire portfolio now looks better Hmm. because they were able to tap into a source of capital at a time when they were able to buy, you know, when everything was at a discount and earn some excess returns in that rebalance. But that rebalance isn't going to show up in the nav of my fund. It's going to show up in the client portfolio. But it's sort of this interesting question of like, a lot of that attribution never goes back to where you took the money from. It just says, oh, these stocks went up a lot that you bought. But it sort of misses that linking of where that money came from. And, and so that's another like big frustration when you manage a strategy like this that's supposed to preserve capital is it preserving capital, I think, in those situations is most valuable when you then redeploy the capital as a liquidity yeah. provider. And again, just as a running an asset management business, unless I tell all my clients, hey, sell my fund today to rebalance your accounts, some of them might not. Yeah. Right. No, man, I actually I, I mean, I think that you I do think you're doing the right thing for your clients because I've talked about a manager that I I had to sort of move on from. And I think part of the the part that I need to own about that relationship not going well is I allocated too much to them. And I at the time probably didn't know the right questions to ask to allocate a little bit less. And I maybe didn't understand their strategy well enough. And I think that there's a lot of clients out there that are, you know, could benefit from a, a more holistic strategy instead yeah. of having to, to know to ask those questions. One of the things I go back to a lot with our strategy design is just saying, let's assume I'm completely full of shit, which by the way, I recognize I am very good at doing a lot of research and then convincing myself that research is right. And then convincing a lot of other people that research is right. I have the unfortunate ability to be convincing. But I think it's worth saying, no, Corey, let's assume you're full of shit. Would you still want to own this portfolio if you're completely full of shit? And I go, all right. So what I have basically is some momentum exposure in my equities. The other half of the portfolio, I'm leaning into strong balance sheet names. So I'm pairing momentum and quality as factors. I am then buying some out-of-the-money call options. I'm buying some out-of-the-money put options. I've got a little bit of trend following to manage my beta. 
And then on top of that, I'm layering on some treasury futures to get sort of a secondary source of return. And what I think over the long run is some beneficial capital efficiency and leverage that now we actively manage that second part there with some tactical signals. But like at the end of the day, is that a a bad portfolio to own, even if I'm completely wrong in my thesis that the market's going to continue to be weird and we're going to continue to experience more upside and more downside than we have before? I don't think so. I'm biased, but I don't think so. So we just took a bathroom break. And the only reason that I'm announcing that is because if you're watching on YouTube, it's not that my face just magically shaved itself. <laughs> so so that happened. And it was an electric razor. It wasn't a full-blown shave. But you guys don't need to know that. Who cares? <laughs> anyway, now that we're back, I'd love to do The things you do for YouTube. <laughs> Dude, it's, it's totally different. You want different, everyone you know? for that? Hit the like button. That's right. Smash, smash subscribe. that like button. Yeah, that's right. Also, subscribe to that pirate stuff, man. That stuff's good. What is it? It's Pirates of Finance, yep. right? Is the actual. Yep. It's great. All right. So tell me why markets are going to stay weird and why weird is the right right word. Yeah. If you don't so mind. So this word weird, I think I, I keep using it and have used it in a lot of conversations because I think it echoes the sentiments when I talk to a lot of people who are operating in markets, right? GameStop. This whole thing is weird, yeah, right? Weird. March yeah, 2020 was, weird. was kind of weird when you think about all the things and the way they unfolded. Quantitatively, the way I would sort of say have markets been weird is I look at how often extremes are being made, positively or negatively. Okay. Right? So you might say how fat-tailed are markets, right? Yeah. Okay, and that makes and when markets are more fat-tailed or they're getting more fat-tailed over time, it means you're going to see more extreme events with greater frequency. And so one of the things we can show quantitatively is that if you were to try to sort of use all the historical data of the S&P starting in, say, 1995 and estimate how fat-tailed markets are, you'd come up with a number, right? There's just a number that says this is our estimate and ignore what the number actually means, but there's a number. And then let's say you went to 1996 and recalculated it with the new 96 data. Well, the number would be a little higher in 97 and 98. And you keep going. And through the late 90s and the early 2000s, and then certainly 2008, that number just keeps going up and up and up and up and then jumps way up in 2008 because it was such an outlier. And then you would... So is that... is Just sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but is that because 99 and 2008 are both outliers and now you're now you got two of them yep. and now we've had a third yep well and so okay. but here's what's interesting is you would go why would the decade between 2008 through 2020 you know 2010 to 2020 why would that make the data look like tails are getting fatter right that was a pretty calm decade but you go to 2017 right and you say well this is an abnormally weird year with some of the wasn't that the year that like everything went up by one percent like every day i mean it wasn't one the market just melted incredibly slowly positively right yeah Um, that was weird lowest realized volatility in the s&p i think since 1950 Hmm. and if you start talking to people about why that is there's actually a lot of theories as to there was basically all this covered call selling that was happening with some very large mutual funds at that time that was effectively suppressing volatility in the market. 
and it was just leading to a very abnormally calm market. Well, that's sort of a fat tail event in its own right. 2013, hmm. the market was up 31%, I think. That's pretty fat tail to the positive side, right? And so it's, I think it's important to remember fat tail doesn't just mean the left big negative scary thing. It means the market can, can push to the right tail as well. So the question is why? I mean, is this just like, are markets actually getting more fat tailed over time? I think quantitatively it, they seem to be. Qualitatively, is there an underlying reason for it? So that's what my paper Liquidity Cascades was all about. I should add that nothing I put forth in Liquidity Cascades was a new or novel idea, right? So I got a lot of credit for that paper. None of the credit should come to me. All I did was take a survey of all these different research papers that were out there and sort of put them together in, in the way I thought the puzzle fit. And the big three ideas that were out there were central bank intervention is changing market dynamics. The other one was the rise of passive investing. And so Mike Green has obviously been on the vanguard of that pun fully intended, by the way. I think there is- Nicely played, sir. Yeah. Nicely done. I've been on a podcast or two. <laughs> <laughs> Within that sort of passive narrative, I think has been the rise of what I would call passive vehicles. So target date funds, for example, as a savings vehicle. A lot of people don't realize that was a $5 billion industry in like 2002. Now it's something like a two and a half, three trillion dollar industry. What does it mean when everyone puts their savings on autopilot? And then the last piece was sort of this mismatch of liquidity that goes on between high frequency traders. And we're seeing a decreasing number of liquidity providers in the market who aren't really necessarily beholden to providing liquidity when markets get weird. And that's mismatched with a lot of forced liquidity takers. So this is going to be folks who are hedging exotic structured products coming out of Asia, for example. Those are, they're very big in Asia and Europe, these structured notes. Or even something as simple as buying puts in the market or selling covered calls that institutions might have adopted over the last decade. Those are potentially having some impacts on the underlying stock liquidity as these option dealers are trying to hedge their exposure. So there was all these different narratives and I sort of saw it as being a loop. And there's no definitive start or end, but you can sort of think of it like this. Let's say central banks start to intervene and the primary mechanism of intervention is reducing the discount rate, right? And they decide to keep that rate suppressed for a decade. Well, what does that ultimately do? Well, investors who are savers, who have long dated liabilities like institutions and pensions are going to be forced up the risk curve. Right? If they have to hit a long-term 7.5% return and they can't do it with bonds anymore, not only are they going to buy more stocks, but they're going to potentially start moving into illiquid assets, yeah. which means during a period of market dislocation, it puts more emphasis on the remaining liquid assets for them to mm. be able to, to meet their short-term liabilities. Right, But you look at like how would you have achieved a 7.5% huh. return in 1995? 100% U.S. Treasuries. 2005, probably 50% U.S. Treasuries. 2015, maybe 10% U.S. Treasuries. And the rest would have been public equities and private equity and private credit and that sort of stuff. Right? Hmm. So everyone's getting pushed up the risk curve. We all need to move into equities and riskier assets and high yield and private credit and all this sort of stuff to meet these return obligations. A lot of that then sort of, in theory, creates this perpetual bid 
under equities. So why are equities trading at a higher valuation? Well, because in theory, that's what people are being forced to buy to hit these long dated return obligations that they have. And so you end up with a higher valuation multiple in equities, which arguably not reflexively drives down the forward return, but that's a whole other sort of situation. Yeah, I know. Like uh, you just talk, I'm like, man, this is, this, if this doesn't end well, it's not like the writing wasn't on the wall. <laughs> so, all right. So everyone starts, right? Everyone's like, okay, well now we've got way more equities. How do we either find other ways to enhance our yield, right? So you get all these covered call selling programs that institutions have adopted. You, they start adopting alternative risk premia, which are going to systematically delever, right? They've got leverage targets. You also saw post 2008 that a lot of insurance companies, the variable annuities that they started to offer moved from, or they moved into a target volatility structure. So what that means is they would say, I'll give you the S&P 500, but it's the S&P 500 at 5% volatility. So if the S&P is realizing a vol above five, we're going to introduce some cash to make sure that the total mm. portfolio you hold is five. And if the S&P is below five, we're going to actually lever it up to get you back to five. The reason they did this was twofold. One, it was client demand. The second was from a regulatory perspective, they needed to show that there was some sort of, in theory, embedded put within these structures so that their balance sheets were more stable as, as insurance companies. And so actually buying put protection would be prohibitively expensive. So they introduced these trading strategies. All right, so very systematic. You saw everyone post 2008 start to adopt CTAs and risk parity. They wanted more diversification, but they wanted it in risk assets. So what happens when volatility gets suppressed? Everyone is selling covered calls. They're buying equities. They're moving into these products that have systematic ability to delever. The, everyone's crowding into these positions and but then, dude, don't you also get the perverse effect of like, since volatility's suppressed, people feel okay getting more levered? Yep. And not just feel okay, systematically Do. they will. Yeah. Like the, the mechanics of a lot of these trading strategies are to get more levered. So, And it makes sense because you're trying to eke out return. Exactly. Also. Exactly. So what happens then when you get an exogenous mm. shock? Everybody's got to liquidate at like the same time. Everyone is liquidating systematically at the same time, right? Like this yeah. is not like, oh, I feel like liquidating today. It's no, it's the rules of my index are vol is X. My target is Y. X is above Y. I need to sell and buy cash, right? And so mm -hmm. you get everyone forced liquidating and you're seeing this in all sorts of exotic structured products coming out of Asia. You're seeing it in all these products in the US, everyone's violently unwinding, which by the way is causing the market to be more volatile. And then the central banks have to step in again to provide liquidity, stabilize markets, and the whole loop sort of continues. Hmm. And so that's the qualitative thesis as to at a macro perspective, why I would expect markets to continue to have these sort of extreme ups and downs. And I don't know whether it's gonna be up, I don't know whether it's gonna be down, but given the influence that I think a lot of these systematic players have in the market and how much capital they're sloshing in and out over time, I think it has a big impact on the ultimate speed and direction that the market moves in the short term. And by short term, I mean like in any given year. You know what's so perverse about all this is like 
there's an argument to be made that the game to play in that, if you're willing to accept the assumption that the intervention can stave off catastrophe, is just like buy the shit out of levered equities. You nailed it. So this is the exact conversation I've had with people. They go, okay, so what's the optimal answer? I say, well, it sort of depends on what your belief in this is and how confident yeah. you are in that narrative. But if you believe there's a Fed put, buy levered equities and then buy whatever hedge you need for hedging the Fed not stepping in, which might be maybe the Fed steps yeah. in and they break the dollar, right? So maybe you buy yeah. currency vol or, or whatever or it is. Or Bitcoin. But- Do you hear me? You didn't hear me, did no, you? No, I didn't. I said, or Bitcoin. Or Bitcoin. Or Bitcoin. People. You know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Light the podcast yeah. on fire again. But I think, you know, I, I think the, the sort of the- That's wild. I mean, I I guess it's stuff that I've thought about, and stuff, but hearing you talk through it, right, and just like having the conversation- Again, I don't know. That's again. I don't want to say it's like scary, right? It, but I'm very good seems... at convincing people of things. So this might be entirely no, bullshit. Man. But but here's what I would say: everyone has sort of accepted GameStop was a gamma squeeze and a short squeeze in one, right? That that these these investors used options to force option dealers to buy the underlying stock as a hedge which forced a bunch of shorts to unwind their position. That's sort of like the commonly accepted narrative. I think it's questionable, but I would just argue those same dynamics are happening at a macro level in an uncoordinated fashion, right? Not everyone, they're not all talking to each other saying, oh, let's all buy equities to drive up equities. What's happened is you've gotten coordinated behavior because of what market participants are asking for, what they're demanding. And so you have this coordinated behavior of all these sort of, in theory, uncoordinated participants. But in many ways, I think it's that GameStop saga is just a microcosm of what's happening at a more macro level. Hmm. I got to think about this, man. But this is like my gut says like you either I, I either carry some sort of insurance perpetually, but I don't really like the drag of that. But for some reason, my mind's okay with the cash drag that's about to come out of my mouth or like I carry some cash, <laughs> you know, like when sort of as as things reflate, I sort of like go to cash and then just kind of wait again. Right. I mean, I, I understand that if that doesn't sound sound to people, but I'm telling you, I've thought about it for two minutes. So give me a break if it's not. But like I can understand why people say that there's a guy, I think it was T. Rowe Price. I think it was on, I know it was on Wealth Track. I think he was from T. Rowe Price and he was making the argument that long shorts the new 60-40. Yeah. And I kind of wonder if there's some, I mean, like if, if your theory is right, I kind of wonder if that's the way you hedge some of this. Well, like, I don't know. Let's do some but, really, really simple math, right? I mean, just as another example, let's say you think stocks are going to return 5% and bonds are going to return zero. A 60-40 is going to have a 3% return expectation. Yeah, you got to lever it. Right? But even if you, yeah. let's say you don't lever it, why couldn't I say I'm going to buy stocks and then burn 2% in put options? I end up at the same expected 3% return, but now I'm going to have something like 95, 98% stocks and 2% put options. Right? Like, why is that not a viable alternative in this environment? To a 60-40? To a 60-40. And as it, as it turns out, and we actually did an episode on Pirates of Finance on this, like the return profiles look very similar to each other over the last decade. And so I, I just think it's one of these situations where, again, I would, 
Again, I'm biased. I got to rewatch this. I remember this episode, but I don't think that I like was maybe I'm just listening more attentively now. But yeah, I got to rewatch this episode. So I'm I'm biased, but I again I think it's about diversifying your diversifiers. All right. Yeah. I don't know what path the market's going to take, but risk most risk management approaches are highly path dependent. And so if you don't know, if you're not confident in the path the market's going to take, why wouldn't you diversify sort of paths you're protected over? Hmm. I don't know, but I generally kind of agree with, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I, this makes sense to me is probably the best way to, to summarize my thoughts right now. I will tell you probably this was the scariest paper for me to ever publish when I published it because it's non-quantitative in many ways, right? Um, and, and as a quant, you're typically looking for a big depth of history, but the argument here is this is an emergent phenomenon. And so the argument hinges on a, on a breadth of data, not a depth. And so I was very uncomfortable publishing it. I actually secretly floated it out there to about 50 different people to get feedback. And I think the worst feedback I got was, yeah, this makes sense to me. And I don't, right? Like, and, and that's scary to me. I, yeah. I hope I'm wrong about this because yeah. I think it implies something very scary about market structure and the way the system is set up. So it would be great to be wrong about this because, you know, otherwise it basically says we're in this sort of flows over pros market. Yeah. Right. And that's a, that's a quote I'm stealing from Tracy Holloway at, at odd lots. Like we are in a market where all of this hedging flow and systematic capital flow is, is moving markets. I, I think less, maybe let, what's the word I want to use? Like less uh, triggering is the idea that just like, Look, if you change how markets are accessed, why would we not expect markets to behave differently, right? If you all of a sudden yeah. you give a generation access to trading options in a totally gamified way, well, why wouldn't that change markets? If all of a sudden you yeah. tell every investor you're going to earn nothing saving cash, right, in your savings account, you need to invest it in a, a glide path driven target date fund that every time market goes down relative to bonds is going to buy stocks and sell bonds very systematically and vice versa, why would that not have an impact on the way markets operate? And, yeah. and papers show that since target date funds have gotten bigger, that markets have become more mean reversionary between stocks and bonds. Hmm. Right. So I, I sort of look at it and say, yeah, we expect efficient markets. But when we're moving into structures that are changing access to certain markets, or we're by definition, target date funds cannot be efficient vehicles. There's, there's no efficiency happening there. If they become large enough, they can actually become sort of the whale that's changing the tide and the current of the waters it's swimming in. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is along the lines of what Mike Green talks about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe not exactly, but somewhat similar. So, you know, one of Mike's arguments, for example, is look- Old mutual funds in, in the 90s would have held 2, 3, 5% cash. You look at a modern day ETF, it's going to hold five basis points of cash. Yeah. So what happens if, ignoring his whole argument about active to passive, what happens if I just move everyone from a mutual fund that held 5% cash to equivalent ETFs that are now managed much more efficiently that have five basis points? You, got a lot more buying. You might say just structurally. Yeah, four point nine five percent cash. Can that really make a big deal? Well, there's a paper that came out this fall that argued every dollar of buying pressure into the market drives the market up five dollars. 
Huh. That's sort of this, the idea is- That's like, how tight the supply demand is? That's the sort of the, the inelasticity. Now that's a long-term wow. average, right? So yeah. the problem is, well, maybe it's higher now, or maybe it's lower. But if you say, okay, over the last decade, we've moved all this money from sitting in cash to increasing the demand for stocks. And there's like the supply is, hasn't changed much. In fact, arguably the supply has gone down because of buybacks and fewer IPOs. But you're increasing the demand because we've moved from vehicles that held more cash to less cash. Well, that's a good reason why valuations might have structurally gone upwards. Yeah. Huh. Huh. I, I'm, I'm speechless, man. But this is fascinating well, these are, stuff. These are the things that haunt me at night lately over the yeah. last year and i don't have any good answers i think that's probably the most frustrating part is i just go there are a lot of like a lot of huh that's interesting yeah yeah it is i mean like you know i i feel it in my own life right i i need some yield because i need to eat today and like where did i go to get yield cigarette companies right because at one point altria was looking at you know i mean the pandemic seems to have sort of reintroduced people to sticks which, you know, is not great, but I can't change the world. And, you know, I was getting like a look through yield north of eight and a half. And it's like, okay, well, in a 0% world, yeah, I've got some risk that this, I mean, there's certainly terminal value risk right. on this asset. And and somebody could say, well, you're definitely, cre-, you know, I've talked about overweighting future cash flow and discounting terminal value risk. And it's something that I'm going to have to monitor. But that's a risk that I'm more willing to take because I'm not getting yield anywhere else. Right. And I look at the relative value of the dividend yield on that asset, like Altria specifically, but also Philip Morris. And it's like, I don't know. I'd rather own that than a bond. So you want to hear a, a funny anecdote. So this, in Japan in the early 2010s, the, I think it's the Japanese pension, and I'm blanking on the actual name of the, the massive pension there, effectively came to the same conclusion that they're like, we need yield how are we going to do this without bonds, right? Because Japanese government bonds aren't yielding much and they're looking at sovereign bonds around the world. They decided to start buying this quality value dividend portfolio in a systematic hmm. fashion. The problem was they were buying in such size that after sort of the first quarter, everyone went, we know sort of the strategy they're, they're come running. In. Yeah. And we know what stocks they'll be buying next quarter. And they started yeah, just front them. front running them in a yeah. way that made the value stocks no longer value. Sure. So it created turnover in in this massive Japanese pension, like like government pension, that actually was like blew up the cross section of stocks. You remember back like huh. June last year where we saw like those couple of days of value and momentum went wild. Yeah. The market was like flatlined, but all of a sudden value spiked and then crashed. And like, imagine that happening like every quarter for like a year in Japan. And that's exactly what happened because of this weird pursuit for yield drove them towards this dividend stock strategy that everyone learned about and was front running. Huh. As I articulated what I did, I, I have Buffett's le- last letter like resonating in my head that says the answer is to just accept less yield and yeah. not take more risk. But- you know, but, but sorry. what's funny about that is that is the answer everyone should have. And it, but it's an unacceptable answer for most institutions that have a... And most people, man, well, most people don't have enough money to retire absolutely. on 1%. Absolutely. Absolutely. But but for, for like big people moving money around, 
institutions for sure cannot accept that answer. It is hard for them to go back and try to lower that discount rate. And it's very hard for them to get more money put into the pension from, from the company, right? Yeah. These things are a massive liability. And so they're just sitting there going, all right, we got to hit this discount rate and we need some actuarial answer that'll get us there. All stocks, baby. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense. I, you know, I, I see it in my own life. I mean, if rates were six or 7%, then maybe I, although I don't know if rates are that high, then maybe I never get enough motivation to uh, do this podcast. That's so right. I'm glad, I'm glad that maybe this will be personally. at the end of the day, you know, a couple more episodes, get yourself a nice sponsor. This will be your high yielding asset. Well, that would be kind of dope. I don't want to sell out to a product that I like whore myself out to. I want it to be the right fit. Well, it um, could be perhaps some sort of uh, shaving instrument. Yes, that's right. Yes, a uh, an electric razor. Yeah. Perfect for the bathroom breaks. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's it, Man, it's been fun to do. I don't know. I, I hope it can continue. It's amazing how many really cool people there are in finance and you know, I really appreciate you coming on. You were honest about a lot of stuff. And if I can continue to attract guests like you that set the tone for more guests to come on, then this thing will keep going. Well, my and my I, pleasure, I really man. enjoyed it. As I said, you've been a breath of fresh air in the podcast space. I love, love what you're doing. I love the cross section of people you're getting on. So keep it up. I, I love it. It's great. I will do. And until we talk again, enjoy the Caribbean. Thank you, sir. Enjoy Florida. All right, man. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.